Hello, hello. Welcome to the Strategy of Finance podcast, where we celebrate the profession and the professionals in the world of finance. These unsung heroes mostly remain away from limelight, but contribute tremendously towards company building. We endeavor to unpack their journeys to understand what moves them, get inspired by their triumphs, learn from their experiences, and most of all, connect with them at a personal level. I'm your host, Rohit Agarwal, and besides this podcast, my full-time duties include building Creo, the unified operating system for corporate spend. We are bringing together the whole journey of spend so you can buy, pay, and manage all your corporate spends from one single platform. Do check us out at www.krayo.io. Without further ado, let's tune in to learn, grow, and inspire. It is not often that we get to host a highly decorated CFO, at least not yet. But today, we are grateful to be in the company of a top 25 CFO in software for 2023 awardee. I'm elated to introduce our distinguished guest, Mr. Karan Bhopale, whose financial ingenuity and visionary leadership have earned him a reward spot amongst the top 25 CFOs in software for 2023, published by the well-known Finance and Investing. Currently, as the Chief Financial Officer of Strong DM, Karan is at the forefront of propelling the firm's momentum and laying a strong foundation for an expanding enterprise business. His financial stewardship is not only instrumental in modernizing infrastructure access, but also embodies a holistic approach to organizational excellence. Before his remarkable journey with Strong DM, Karan showcased his financial prowess as the Vice President of Finance at Sentinel One. His strategic acumen was crucial in scaling the company from a modest 15 million of annual recurring revenue to an astounding 300 million and beyond. His key role in orchestrating the company's successful IPO speaks volumes of his adaptness in navigating the complex financial landscape of the cybersecurity domain. Prior to these roles, Karan honed his skills at notable firms like Financial Force, now Satinia, and Salesforce where his financial modeling and strategic planning were instrumental in driving fiscal growth. His early career as a financial analyst at the Walt Disney Company laid a solid groundwork for his illustrious career trajectory. A proud alum of Stanford University with a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering, Curran's professional narrative is a blend of continuous learning, relentless pursuit of excellence, and adapt financial leadership. As we delve into today's discussion, we are poised to glean invaluable insights from Karan's rich experiences and learn about the financial scaffolding that empowers tech firms to transcend conventional boundaries in this digital epoch. Please join me in extending a hearty welcome to Karan Bopley. Hey Karan, welcome to the show. Really glad to have you on. Hi Rohit, pleasure to be here. Great. Uh, why don't we kick it off with a little background on you? So tell us, how did you make your foray into this amazing world of finance? Yeah, my foray into finance is somewhat circuitous and unexpected. I studied engineering as a college student uh, because I liked math and I liked science, at least I thought I did. And then when I did undergraduate research in a lab while I was working four or five hours at a stretch during the day, running experiments by myself, half of which worked, half of which didn't, I realized that it wasn't for me um, and that I wanted to work with more people and do something that has more of a tangible impact. And so um, I switched career paths. And after finishing college, um, I joined 
um, the corporate finance department at the Walt Disney Company, um, specifically in, in the theme parks and resorts division, which I think today has a different name. But that's where I began my career as an analyst. So at the lowest rung of the totem pole, um, but I learned a lot there and was there for two or three years, then left LA and left that industry and joined tech and specifically enterprise software. It was the same profession, but a different industry and something that was much more dynamic. So I joined Salesforce, which is a large and very well-known publicly traded enterprise software company. And then after Salesforce, I moved into private companies, one of which ended up going public which was uh, my former company, Sentinel One. And I built my career doing finance in-house at tech companies. And today I'm the CFO of tech startup in cybersecurity. And that's how it all turned out. Very cool. Uh, did you get free passes to the parks while you were at Walt Disney? I did. They called it, I don't know if they still have it, but I call it, they called it the Silver Pass. It was great. You could get yourself and three other people into the park on any day except for certain blackout dates like, you know, Christmas, New Year's and whatnot. So, yeah, at, at some point I had to stop telling people I had those because I was getting too many visitors, you know, and I couldn't tell if they were coming to L.A. to visit me or to visit the parks. Uh, it was 50-50, I think, but it was a lot Com of fun. Comparable to Google Perks, I guess. <laughs> I guess, right, in a way. Yeah, yeah, totally. Very cool. As you said, you kind of moved industries uh, from kind of what we may call a little more brick-and-mortar operation, very heavy on the day-to-day -day operational side, I would imagine, compared to tech. What was the change from your perspective between those two industries? What you had to attune yourself towards when you jumped into the tech side of things? Yeah, I think a couple of adjustments and transitions I had to make. One was around the pace of the job and the pace of the companies, because I was coming from a place the theme parks and resorts market and the theme, theme parks and resorts division of Disney was um, growing at a single digit growth rate every year because it's not a high revenue growth business. It's a capital intensive um, business where the, where the focus is on, sure, a little bit of growth, but focuses on profit, operating leverage, um, gross and operating profit. And there's something to be said about the correlation between revenue growth in a business and the pace that you have to keep up with. When I moved into enterprise software, companies that were growing 100%, 50%, or anywhere in the middle, year on year, the company looks very different after four years, or even three years, or even two years. Whereas you know, a theme parks company that's been around a while, it doesn't look very different after 10 years. I mean, it looks a little different maybe, but so the pace is different, that's one thing. And then the second thing was, just adjusting to what metrics are important. And you know, when you switch from one enterprise software company to the other, there are some adjustments, minor adjustments to be made in terms of understanding the particular market that you're in. But SaaS, software as a service as a business model, and enterprise software as a service as a business model, the metrics don't change. They're agnostic of which particular space you're in. If you're in that business model, the same kind of metrics apply. The benchmarks may be different, but the metrics are, are the same. Whereas you know, switching from a different industry into software, learning the metrics. And it's not rocket science, but it just takes a little time to understand how the metrics are put together, what's more important than others, and what the benchmarks are, and how the street thinks about it. And I think, I think as a corollary to that, um, when you compare 
the parks and resorts and travel and leisure space, especially, you know, theme parks, it, it's so different when you have a business that is capital intensive, where the payback periods are very long and you have net operating losses for Lord knows how, how many years, 10, 20 years. Whereas in enterprise software, especially high growth software, payback periods are much shorter, which is why a lot of money goes into investing in these kinds of companies because the returns can be phenomenal. So those kinds of adjustments, they were really fun. It was a really fun adjustment. It wasn't too challenging, but adjusting to the pace of Silicon Valley was important and uh, something that took a little time. And I guess what a way to start that journey with Salesforce, uh, which is certainly one of the leading companies, I guess it was back then and still continues to be. So maybe tell us about uh, your time uh, at Salesforce and how maybe it was different than all of your other experiences. Yeah. So Salesforce, when I was there, I mean, the company is still growing, as you implied. But when I was there, I was running analytics for the source to settle a procure to pay department, which was under the CFO. So we were responsible for uh, everything we buy, everything we pay for. And then later on, everything we collect, because we also then brought in accounts receivable. So I was running and presenting analytics across those functions, um, some very large procurement projects um, while I was there. And what was interesting and perhaps what made it different from the other jobs that I had in my career, which were more bread and butter FP&A and strategic finance, was really getting deep into working capital and the working capital management and the cash conversion cycle. Because when you're in corporate finance or strategic finance, you obsess about the PL and the balance sheet and you obsess about metrics that you know investors look at and um, all the classics, revenue growth, gross margin, operating margin, and in the SaaS world, customer lifetime value, customer acquisition cost and the ratio of the two, payback periods, magic number, sales efficiency, all of that stuff. But in my job at Salesforce, the direct impact that I had was on how to optimize um, the working capital cycle, which is just away from the PL. It's about AP, AR, more balance sheet stuff, things like managing float, managing, you know, days payables outstanding, your receivables period, doing a lot of spend management, which is a little bit different from managing budgets, like doing actual spend analytics looking at where, which suppliers uh, you're concentrating your spend on, what kinds of discounts are you getting? So it's it's much earlier on than the PL. It's almost like upstream of the PL, as in before an expense actually hits the PL, how is it even generated? How is a supplier chosen? How to run an RFP? How long does an RFP take? How do you evaluate an RFP? It, it was a fascinating, so I'm I'm grateful for that experience because it is not, as I said, all my other jobs are more traditional corporate finance, PL balance sheet, cash flow management, annual planning, quarterly planning, all of that. But my job at Salesforce gave me insights into very much the operational part of managing um, managing financial operations, which is you know which is different. But like if you have that and you combine it with your understanding of corporate finance concepts, it can be super powerful. Absolutely makes a ton of sense. And so then, what led you to move from Salesforce to Financial Force? It was not a strange move because Financial Force was a Salesforce investment. So kind of long story short is in my time at Salesforce, you know, I had friends and contacts in different departments, one of which was the venture arm of Salesforce, Salesforce Ventures. And of course, they invest in 
several companies, private companies um, that they hope will be successful. And one of them was Financial Force. It interested me because, well, a couple of reasons. One is the company sells and sold at the time an accounting product and a professional services automation product and a human capital management product. So these were all GNA functions that they were supporting. And so because I had a finance and accounting background or at least experience, I could kind of relate to the product. In fact, when I joined Financial Force, I, re I was reporting to the CFO and he and I and several others on the finance and accounting team, we would spend a lot of time in the product and then giving advice to the product teams because we were consumers of it, which is not the same. You don't have that in every company because most software companies don't sell financial products. They sell all kinds of other things. Um, so that was cool. That was attractive. But the other part of it was it was a much smaller company, but that had relatively high growth. And because Salesforce was backing it, you know, I was confident that, okay, it could go somewhere. And it was a corporate finance job uh, where I was, I was running FP&A because it was a small company. So I was coming in as an FP&A manager reporting to the CFO and we, we together, we would manage the plan, build the plan, model it out, um, review it with the CEO and peers. And so um, peripheral eagle's eye view that only corporate FP&A gets into a company I had at Financial Force. And that's why I took the job. Got it. And I guess you uh, left that before the transaction happened, right? If I have yeah, my yeah, timeline I, right. Yeah, Financial Force rebranded into Certinia. The sale, it recently got sold to a private equity firm by the name of Haveli Investments. And that happened, let's see, yeah, that happened five years after I left. So I tell, I tell my colleagues and peers and friends that if you think a company has a shot at success, buy your shares especially if they're cheap, because you never know when you'll be able to cash out on them. So I was right in the case of financial force, which was good. Very cool. Take us through the Sentinel One journey. That seems like a pretty interesting company and a unique asset that ultimately IPO'd. So how did you get into Sentinel One and what led to that decision? Yeah. <laughs> so Sentinel One, so I was at financial force for about three and a half four years or so decided that I needed a change. And the company had also changed leadership. So the year before I left, the CEO was changed. And then a few months before I left, the CFO, my boss had changed. And, you know, change is not necessarily good or bad, but it is what it is. And uh, sometimes it can be a signal for, for employees to think about, you know, what to do next. And so for me, and it still is about learning. It was about learning back then. It's still about learning now. And what I've noticed in a decent growth tech company, if you're running FP&A in strategic finance, three or four annual planning cycles is good. And then you you know what the business is. I mean, you you know pretty much after three cycles. The, the times when that doesn't apply is if the business model, not the revenue growth. Revenue growth can be really high, but if the business model is changing, if a company that is doing only software suddenly starts selling hardware as well and starts having multiple revenue streams and the business is really changing, not in terms of pace, but in terms of complexity, then perhaps staying longer, you'll learn more. But if it's a software company that's selling you know, one product in one year and then the next year it's selling two, three, four, but the business model is the same, you kind of learn, you've learned all you need to know about the business after three or four cycles. So I kind of reached that point as well at Financial Force. As I was thinking about my next step in my career, I was thinking along the same lines that, that uh, as the change that I made earlier, which is I want to stick to my profession because I love it, but let's see if I can change uh, industries 
while sticking to the same business model. So stick to my profession, stick to enterprise SaaS, because I got used to it and I really like it and I think it's pretty cool, but perhaps a new, different vertical. And I'd always been fascinated by cybersecurity. I saw <laughs> I saw the job posting of Director of Finance at 7-1 and LinkedIn. And I saw that I didn't know anybody at the company. I literally did not know anybody at the company. Um, there was only 200 people at the time. But I, I saw that I had a, a second-degree connection on LinkedIn. And so I went to my first-degree connection, whom I knew, because we had done some nonprofit work together. And I said, hey, can you link me to this person at Sentinel One? I'm, you know, they have a job opening. And then she said, sure. And she linked me to the person at Sentinel One who, who herself was a part-timer. She, she was a contract legal professional. And uh, she was also looking to join the company full-time. So I, but she had been there as a contract legal professional for six months to a year or something like that. And so I, uh, so I talked to her and, and I asked her about the company at the time, and of course, this is an evolution of companies, right? This can change. But I, I had read the Glassdoor reviews of the company and of certain management team members, and they weren't terribly flattering. So I asked her, what's going on here? Like, what, why are these Glassdoor reviews saying what they're saying? And she just laughs it off. She's like, don't worry about that. They're just, you know, upset employees who left, you know, a while ago, and it doesn't matter. Listen, the CFO is fantastic. The product here is great. And you know, you should consider it. And I said, okay, well, I will consider it. Um, how do you think I should approach this? And she said, Bob, who was the CFO at the time, you know, Bob loves people who are proactive. Why don't you just cold message him on LinkedIn and see if he responds? I said, okay, sure. So I write this cover letter. I cold message. It's nice two or three paragraphs. I'm like, oh, I've done this and I've done that and whatnot. And and then I mentioned my uh, the person I talked to in the company and said, hey, I, I talked to Lital. She had great things to say. And I sent the cold message on LinkedIn, fully expecting that this guy's never going to read it. He's a CFO. He's experienced. Lord knows how many messages he gets in his inbox, whatnot. Within half an hour, he messages back and says, thank you. Do you have a resume? Because all I had sent was a couple of paragraphs. And I said, yes, I do. I sent my resume. And 15 minutes later, he said, your experience is relevant. Somebody here will be calling you. And so I got a call. I went in to interview with him, the controller, and a couple other people. We hit it off. And I said, all right, let's do it. And that's how I joined Sentinel One. And, and in the process, I talked to a couple of um, mentors, a couple of people um, who are investors in the space. And the vibe I got from them was the product, the technology is outstanding. They need good operators to help scale the business. They had a, a bit of a bit of trouble early on doing that, so they're now they're hiring operators. And I saw that they had hired they had hired a CFO the year before. They had hired a controller. They hired a head of sales, a head of biz dev, a head of product. So they were in that mentality after they had received their Series C funding. And I looked at the backgrounds of those people, and they were all operate like they all had scaled companies before. They they were operators, and so that gave me confidence that okay. If you combine a good product in a hot market, I mean, hot market and different parts of cybersecurity are hotter than others, but this was, this one was hot. So combine a good tech with good operators and you may have something. And that's how I joined the company. Very cool story. You started with in the tech world, you started with Salesforce, then you went to financial force, which one can say it's a vertical software company as they kind of basically cater to the service oriented businesses. And then you move to cybersecurity. So three very different areas of enterprise software. How would you characterize the similarities and differences between the three? And as a finance professional, 
do you need to again adjust as you move from one to the other? Are there specific transitions that you need to make in your job to be able to kind of really do that well? Yeah, it's a great question. If you think about it, Salesforce and Financial Force, Salesforce kind of standalone, huge platform, application software, sales cloud, marketing cloud, etc. They cater to the front offices uh, and to revenue generating functions. Financial Force was an application that sat on top of Salesforce, which is one of the reasons why Salesforce invested in them and did back office applications, but it were still applications. And then when you moved into, when I moved into Sentinel One and cybersecurity, I basically moved from application software to system software, like one level underneath. It's a, it's a different dynamic for a few reasons. One is the cybersecurity value chain is so broad that, and, and there's so much to buy when you're thinking about security as a company securing your own company that you buy from so many companies so like if uh, if you contrast that with let's say you're a controller or a cfo and you're buying accounting software you buy netsuite or oracle or whatnot let's just choose netsuite because that's the one i've bought for the last couple of companies you buy netsuite you buy a few bells and whistles on top of netsuite you're done like if you're taking care of accounting and accounting is huge it depends on the company but it's huge and you can take care of it with like one application with some you know side applications on it right so if you're the controller you're, you're taken care of you do that you're done if you're the chief information security officer or CISO, like you could have 50 tools that do a variety of different things because cybersecurity is so broad. And so the value chains look a little different. And so you are constantly trying to think, okay, how do I manage all these different tools as a, as a buyer of security software? What is high priority? What's medium priority? What's low priority? Because for as a buyer of security tools, you are managing real risk. Like once you once you get breached, like it's a kiss of death and you have to remediate it. And then there are all kinds of regulatory and compliance things you have to do, as well as, you know, managing the confidence of your suppliers and your customers. And so you got to put a lot of money and effort in preventing breaches. And so when I joined Sentinel One, I saw how that the criticality of the software that we were selling made the revenue streams more reliable than, say, the revenue streams of a financial force that's selling finance and accounting software. Now, uh, simply because accounting software is great, and once you've sold it, you know the C the controller, the buyer needs it. They need to renew it because they need accounting software. But it's not protecting the infrastructure of the company the way a next generation antivirus tool is. So when the economy is expanding and we're in good economic times versus when the economy is contracting and you're in bad economic times and budgets are being slashed, you can bet that certain parts of the cybersecurity budget will never be touched. And so if you are selling software that's within those categories, you're relatively safe. Whereas if you're selling application software, marketing software, professional services software and whatnot, and you're trying to expand your revenue, it's harder to argue that you're critical, that you're critical to a company's infrastructure, right? And that's, that's one of the biggest learnings I got from working in Sentinel One. It's like the old, old concept you learn in economics textbooks when you're learning, you know, Econ 101 is what, what determines the elasticity of demand in a market? And one of the factors is, is the market for luxury or a necessity? And the more necessary it is, uh, the more robust the revenue stream will be if you figured out the product. Right. And and Sentinel One is an example of that. And Sentinel One's competitors in that market are an example of that. And the way I knew that is because you had a lot of investors investing in not just Sentinel One, but its competitors as well, because they weren't just investing in any particular company, they were investing in the market because they knew that there there were these group of companies that had figured it out and the demand was going to be pretty robust. Right. So 
that's the, that was the that was the main difference and then to link it to finance when you're forecasting and planning and you're doing annual planning and when i was at sentinel one there was a couple of years pre-covid and then covid hit and the world changed and so of course a lot of people in in our profession and my profession when covid hit we had to do a bunch of reforecasting like oh my goodness remote work we can't go out lockdowns what's this going to do to our financials what's this going to do to our cash runway and so of course as because i was running fpna for one i had to do all of that and i was running you know tens of scenarios and people were freaking out black swan event etc etc but what was fascinating is that in that market covid which accelerated the the work from home trend that kind of was already taking place in at a much slower pace and that accelerated the need for faster networks network access cloud access and then all the security around it in the market that i was in that sentinel one was in and is in that was a boom for the market for that particular market because suddenly now you're accessing clouds public private clouds networks from home from from wherever you are because you're you're not necessarily at the office because you're in a lockdown or or you have restrictions and whatnot those things all that infrastructure needs additional security and the security companies not just sentinel one zscaler netscope crowdstrike you know you name it we're born out of it and and you have private companies like for example wiz that was literally born in the COVID era in 2020 it was started and took off like a rocket ship because whether it was through luck or through intelligence the wiz founders realized that this demand was high and they could grow fast so that was the other takeaway from from cybersecurity versus my prior companies it was like oh my goodness the luxury versus necessity concept combined with the trends of cloud and and remote access it it changed the game you're certainly sounding like cybersecurity lifer now i don't know i don't know i don't <laughs> like to make predictions my financial forecasts i like to keep accurate with, with respect to my personal life or my my career i don't know who knows right who knows it was like i don't want to rely on cold messaging uh future bosses to get jobs you know what i mean i mean that was just like so you never know serendipity always plays a role very cool I'm intrigued to understand given the financial force background there's always this question as to how much of your fate do you put in one particular platform mm. and I'm not saying whether it's salesforce or servicenow is coming up like emerging as a pretty good platform and so on and so forth any of these platforms are not great but again you know you are putting a lot of reliance on one particular platform with your background and experience can you give us a glimpse into how do companies think about it from in, you know internal perspective like is there always a debate that hey should we diversify should we also build on some other platform should we also have a standalone offering which may not be you know based on a particular platform like a salesforce or a, or, or a service now yeah it's it's a great question because this theme of consolidation versus diversification you see it in several contexts and when you're running a company for example just as an analogy before i talk about the tools themselves you know it's like where do you stash your cash the company's cash how do you manage treasury there are benefits to holding them in one or two institutions to get better yields and to get better get better agreements if you're also using the bank to give you loans and whatnot but then every so often you get a crisis like what happened with silicon valley bank where you know the bank internally was not managing interest rate risk very well and then had to to reduce the value write down the value of its assets that then created effectively a bank run and i i don't think all of that was necessary but it happened i mean that's the nature of the bank run word spreads 
and the next thing they you know they need a bailout and so in that situation diversifying where you're holding all your ca- all your cash really helps but in the case of a tool uh, or set of tools and the idea of you know how many platforms you would need i think there is a natural push to consolidate let me put it another way there there is incentive to consolidate Let's look at a couple of examples, let's say, or from a couple of different angles, let's say you're a budget owner, you know, and we could pick a different one. We talked about a CISO, but let's pick about like a, uh, the, a CIO, for example, who runs information technology, and you've got a wide portfolio of tools that you need for different things with respect to IT services, you're a shared, you're largely a shared service for your enterprise, you have a certain budget. And often when you run things through, you run multiple things that you need through one vendor because they provide those things you get volume discounts you get you know you get better deals on future pricing for your renewals and etc etc so you can effectively kill many birds with one stone if you're consolidating through fewer vendors so there's a financial and budgetary incentive for a budget owner to do that if you multiply that across all the different budget owners you have in a particular organization, you know, the head of IT, the head of sales, the head of marketing, the head of whatnot, in leaner times, they pay attention to that. They, there's a natural incentive to consolidate. Now, what is opposing that incentive, the opposite pressure is, okay, when you're consolidating spend and you're be- becoming more efficient with respect to how you're spending your money, because you're consolidating with vendors, you are also increasing your risk. Because if one platform gets breached or if one platform gets is vulnerable to something, then many functions are impacted or, or many workflows are impacted. And so what's ironic uh, in some cases in my, in my experience in planning is that often I would see individual departments' budgets spend come down because they were consolidating. But then you look at the CISO's budget and it actually expanded because the argument that the, that, that the security team was making was, hey, there's now suddenly there's risk here and there's risk here and there's risk here which wasn't there before before right because we're too concentrated here and there so i need more more so there was an offset to those efficiencies but i think overall it was consolidation can be a net positive because i think to mirror that in the security markets there's a lot of consolidation there's a lot of m&a happening as well that's allowing security buyers to concentrate their spend as well without necessarily incurring more risk. There's that going on. So I think it'll be interesting to see how the future looks like because it doesn't seem to be getting simpler. You know, as as enterprises evolve, the tool stack seems to be growing. When enterprises grow, like double their, their headcount or triple their headcount or their revenue and whatnot, they start expanding into new countries, perhaps. They start um, having new revenue streams, selling different things. And that just increases the complexity and the tool stack, generally speaking, when you when you start doing those step function type of activities. And so the incentive to consolidate will just be a constant thing because that's one way to get more efficient. And ServiceNow, right. because, sorry, you, yeah. you mentioned ServiceNow, right? I mean, one of the things that made ServiceNow really successful, I think, is it is a platform that connects with so many different tools and other you know peripheral tools that once you buy the platform and you know the IT buyer will buy ServiceNow and ServiceNow takes care of its integrations with so many other tools it's very hard to get rid of and so once you do a ServiceNow consolidation you're there it's like a one-way street and so as long as the security around it is good you know you're not going to diversify after that like that it's your one-stop shop for a lot of things so I think that that drive will continue to be there makes sense so let's talk about now sort of your most recent move from Sentinel-1 to StrongDM. 
how did that come about? I'm sure Sentinel One was having a pretty good uh, run in the public markets, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about the IPO uh, preparations and kind of what all went into it. But maybe if you can talk about that last move, what went into your head when you were making that switch? Yeah, yeah. The rationale was not that different from the switch I had made going into Sentinel One, in the sense that you know by the time I was I had been in Sentinel One for four years, and like I said earlier. Once you do three or four years uh, annual planning cycles, you know the business. I had a great time at Sentinel One because, you know, growing from 200 people to 1,300 people in, in four years um, was great. You know, the ARR had, had grown by a factor of 20 in my time there. You know, it started at 15 million. And when I, by the time I left four years later, it was at 300 million. And so all of that, kind of what I was implying earlier is that that kind of growth means there's always something to do that's exciting. That like, okay, you know, implementing new systems to support sales compensation, implementing NetSuite and accounting tools, and then close process and all the pre-IPO stuff that you need to do, which, which often involves putting more tools in, you know, implementing or starting like socks all the socks stuff and socks 404 and that kind of thing. And it was to help scale the company, to support sales and marketing, support revenue, but also lower risk by minimizing the chances of a revenue restatement or other things that you don't in the finance world, you just don't want to have happen. So I was very happy to be part of all of that. But after after four planning cycles, I was ready to you know learn something a little bit different. Uh, I had developed a liking for cybersecurity by the end of my time there, and so you know I wanted to stay in cybersecurity. I like building and scaling things, and if if something is scaled already, I tend to get a little bored. So there was a little bit of boredom was also there was also a factor. But I frankly it was somewhat serendipitous in the sense that by by the Shortly before I left Sentinel One, I got a call from an executive search firm, uh, a famous one, that, and they said, hey, um, we love your experience. There's this cybersecurity startup, different space, but a very similar model called StrongDM. They are looking for their first CFO. Um, here, and then they told me about the company, about the product, and about the history a little bit. It was interesting enough for me to take a look at. And then I discovered that I knew two or three of the investors uh, because they had invested in Sentinel One as well. In fact, one of them I, I had brought into Sentinel One to be a late stage investor. And then the other one, other, another one I'd interacted with frequently, they were getting my financial reports from Sentinel One. So so they, I knew three of the investors, which was a vote of confidence, and these were top tier investors. And so then I did a couple of, I, I made a couple of calls about the technology, people who understood the space. Strong DM does privileged access management in a cloud native form. And so it's in the PAM slash identity and access management space, which is not quite the same as next generation antivirus endpoint security, which is where I was coming from. So that was cool. It was cybersecurity, but it was different. And, and so it gave me an opportunity to learn something new. But when I talked to people who understood the market and the space, they said the tech is great. They do not have uh, enough operators, which is why they're hiring for operators. And I said, ah, okay, this sounds familiar, right? And so, and what was interesting is when I started talking with the company, uh, I started with the CEO at the time, uh, and the CEO was one of the co-founders and hit it off with her and talked with the other two co-founders, hit it off with them. And then I got a call from the search firm and said, actually, the company's made a change. They have a new CEO. And I said, oh man, that's a shame because I got along with the with the one I interviewed with. 
But then they said, hey, the new CEO wants to talk to you too. And I said, okay, cool. So I talked to him and we really hit it off and we spent a few hours on Zoom and whatnot. Um, I hit it off with him and he's the most important person um, I knew for, for a CFO job. And then I interviewed with the board and got similar themes that I was getting from the CEO. And I said, okay, this makes sense. The tech is good. They didn't have operators in the right place. Now they're hiring for the right operators. The investors are top tier. The market is big. There's a lot, a lot of market to go after. So a lot of similar dynamics that I'd seen you know, from my prior switch were kind of there. But advantage here was that this was the CFO job and not like a director or VP of finance job. So I was actually going to get to run things, um, which I was interested in doing. And so I said yes, and that's how I ended up at StrongDM. Very cool. Let's dig into a little bit of uh, your CFO role. I'm sure you have seen multiple CFOs over your career and uh, have taken or you know learned something from them, good and bad, both. Now that you are a CFO yourself, how do you operate? What are the things that maybe like first principles to say, hey, this is something that is sacrosanct for me. This is something that how I operate. And these are the things that, you know, are on the other side of the fence for me. Maybe put it another way, like what's your definition of a modern finance or a modern CFO that you are at uh, StrongDM? Yeah, yeah. So fundamentally, I think the modern CFO has to be a strategic operator that also knows finance and accounting to a significant depth. And in the past, a large proportion of CFOs were accountants who were smart accountants, who were also had some strategy in them, and they were moved into the CFO role. Now you see the majority of CFOs coming from strategic finance or operational backgrounds as well. I would say 50% of CFOs are from FP&A, another 40% maybe come from accounting still, 30 to 40%, and the remainder, the remaining um, CFOs are bankers or from Wall Street. And I think those folks get, get hired into positions or into companies that, are, that do a lot of transactions and that need that kind of uh, experience. And so I, I'm in the first category because I grew up in FP&A in financial planning and analysis. But regardless of your background, the CFO's job description is to maximize or optimize the value of the company. That is in one line, that's what the CFO does. Optimize the company's valuation. But then the question is, how does the CFO do that? And I think the way I see it, as I said, a strategic operator who who understands the economics of the market that you're in, uh, understands corporate finance, in other words, how, what it takes to make financial decisions, and then who also understands cash management. And I think if you have those concepts down and understand what the principles are, then you can kind of put it together to optimize company value. But I think what's also more important, you know, in addition to the theoretical understanding of those concepts and those fields, is your partnership with four different groups of people. So I like to think of it as, a, as the diamond of the CFO. So in the top corner of the diamond is your CEO and your board, um, because those are the people who look to you to manage the financial aspects of the business and to keep the train on the track. The analogy I use is the CEO decides what train we're all getting on and what is the destination of that train. And once that is decided, the CFO helps the CEO keep the train on the tracks keep the train going at a certain velocity and deciding who's on the train, who's off, what the carrying capacity of the train is um, so that it's not, it's not overburdened, it's not, it's not underweight, it's going at, at the right speed. And so 
Um, the CEO and the board will look to the CFO to help do that. That's the first corner uh, of the diamond. The second corner is the CFO's peers, the management team, because they are the budget owners. And the CFO technically owns the budget of the company. So creating the budget, enforcing the budget, administering the budget is the CFO's job. And naturally, that involves strong business partnership with the peers. Because if you don't have strong relations with the peers, things can go sideways in ways that are not necessarily pleasant. And that's why the CFO role is very much a people person's job. It's like it's very much a people job because you can't do it without those skills. And especially when it comes to your, your management team. And the way I view budgets, they enforce guardrails on spend, certainly. They, they establish boundaries and you enforce them. But I view budgets as a way to empower your peers and empower all the functions that make up an enterprise that allow a company to come together. And it's empowering if in the, in the planning process, you're being inclusive with those partners, you're giving them a voice, but you're also establishing guardrails. And if you do that in a way where your answer to requests is not no period, but your answer to requests is no comma, but let's open it up, let's change the plan, let's see, let's do the puts and takes and figure it out then it can be really empowering for your management team and they will appreciate it. So that's important. That's the second corner. The third corner of the diamond is your own team, right? So the first corner is CEO on the board, you're managing up. The second is managing laterally, your management team, which is your budget owners and you own the budget. And then the third corner is managing down, um, which is super important. And I think the most important part of the CFO's job is leading the team and managing the outputs of the team, empowering the team, and that includes very tactical things like being clear on the job descriptions, being clear on your expectations, paying them well, both in cash as well as in stock, and rewarding them in other ways as well. Rewards doesn't, don't have to be financial. They can be in, in other ways. You know, if somebody puts up their hand and says, hey, I want to do this other project, and it didn't align with us regular job description, but if it's something interesting and it's something that could be productive for the company, for example, say, yeah, go for it. And for them, they'll consider that as a reward, especially if it's an employee that wants to learn something new, things like that. So I think leading your team well and, and maintaining good relations with your team and empowering them, that's the third point of the diamond. And then the fourth point of the diamond is managing external parties, which is investors, suppliers, and customers. I find that in my role as a CFO, I am talking a lot to all three categories. I mean, certainly to investors, most of the major investors, especially all the ones that have information rights to how the company is doing, I talk to them regularly. And it's always, I, I view those conversations as a two-way street because they learn um, from me about the company and what's good and what's not and what's working and what's not. But I learn from them about the broader trends in the market and what I should look for. So it's very much a two-way street. And then talking to suppliers and customers as well in terms of figuring out how to make the contracts work well. And, and, and again, it's all about relationship management. So what I found interesting in my role as a CFO, very interesting actually is, and, and what makes it different from my earlier jobs and lower level roles in finance is that um, in my earlier roles, the majority of the job was quite technical and it was about very tangible outputs like a budget, a forecast, a multi-scenario model, a calculation for sales commissions for the entire sales field, a financial report, a fundraising deck, a Series C, Series D, Series E deck, an IPO roadshow deck, very tangible outputs that you would play a significant role in 
as a director of finance or a VP of finance, whatnot. But it, stepping into the CFO role, there's still some of that in a startup. I mean, I'm still quite hands-on because you have to be in a small company, of course. And so I'm very grateful for all those technical skills that I've built, but it is largely a relationship management job. It really, and it's a people management job. It's a relationship management job. It's public speaking, communication, presentation, being able to read what the people across from you want and then figuring out how to bridge the gap across, as I said, you know, at least four different groups of parties. Your CEO and your board want certain things. Your peers want different things, and sometimes they clash because the investors want a budget that says X, and your peers want a budget that says Y, and you got to bridge the gap. How do you manage that? And it's not by doing a lot of Excel and spreadsheets. Yes, that's involved, but in the end, it's about persuasion as well, right? Managing your team like you know, and their expectations because you can't give everybody everything. Investor supplies and partners. So it's very much a relationship and people and communication job. And what's ironic about it, I think what makes it a challenge for a lot of CFOs is they get a lot of training in accounting and finance and they're good at it. But when it comes to this stuff, unless they've been trained on it or unless they did some things earlier on in their life that prepared them for it, they're not prepared for it. And so it can be difficult for them, right? Because when you're doing a lot of debits and credits and, and monthly and quarterly closes, or you're doing a lot of spreadsheets and all of that, but you're not, you're not talking to investors every day, or you're not talking to CEOs and boards every day, or you're not presenting decks every day to try to get people to invest in you, then you need some way to be trained on how to do that. In my case, you know, my training in those things goes back longer when, when I, than when I was in college because I did public speaking in high school and I did four years of that. And so that helped me, ironically, 10, 15 years later and longer. Now it's helping me a lot because I don't have to worry about those skills because I built them a lot earlier. My financial and accounting skills came a lot later. So I have that combination. But you do see C CFOs, um, you know, sometimes in, in some in some situations, if they don't have that combination, the job can get hard. And as we know, you know, boards of directors and investors, they don't have too much patience. Like if they see that somebody's falling short, they may give them a chance. And then after that, it's like, okay, we got to replace the person. And so that's where it makes a difference. And that's the biggest difference, I think, from uh, between a VP of director, or VP of finance and the CFO. I love that explanation, and especially the time and framework that you alluded to makes a ton of sense and give it a very concrete picture in anyone's head that is trying to piece together what the role of a CFO is. Uh, you talked about the relationship with the CEO being the most important. Do you do anything specific about fostering that relationship on a regular basis? Well, I try not to upset him. That's the first thing. Because, you know, in my experience, I, even though in my last company, Sentinel One, I wasn't the CFO, but I was still quite close to the CEO. And the, and the company's had a couple of CFOs, but I've always had a great relationship with the CEO, which is great. Because the CEO honed in really early on once I took on FP&A that I was the, the person who knew everything. I've, I've developed a deep respect for CEOs because it is the hardest job in the company, especially in the high growth tech company, since that's the context that we're talking about here because you have pressure from every which way. You have pressure from board, you have pressure from investors, you have pressure from customers, you have pressure from your employees, depending on the company and how big it is. Um, you have pressure from the public press, you have pressure from social media, you got pressure every which way. And it's a hard job and you have a lot of CEOs live complicated lives. You have pressure from your family as well. And you got to listen, like it's like rank and file. And I, I 
I hate to use that term, but I'm going to use it. Rank and file employees worry about things like, you know, work-life balance. And, you know, they ask questions about it. They try to make it happen. But nobody cares about the CEO's work-life balance. At the end of the day, the, the buck stops there. And the CEO will look like an idiot if he starts demanding work-life balance from his board. Or, or, and I use the word his, her, his, whatever. Um, their board or their investors, they'll look like an idiot and the, and the board will just say, okay, well, we'll replace you, you know, and that's it. Or if they have the power to do that. And, and I'll also say that, let's say you're a director of sales or a director of marketing or director of finance. You look to your right, you look to your left, and you see directors, your peers, directors in other functions, like, you know, and you talk and you're like, okay, you're managing a team. I'm managing a team. How do you manage this? How do you manage that? You have peers. And so it's easier to have a social support system within the company. And then you go all the way to like, you know, C-level executives reporting this to the CEO, you know, chief of marketing, head of sales, head of finance, head of legal, whatever. Okay, you still kind of have a peer group. It's a lot smaller, but you can still talk to one. But when you're the CEO, you're at the top of the pyramid, you don't have peers at the company. You have nobody. Now, you should talk to other CEOs, and a lot of CEOs do, right? Like founders, tech company founders will talk to other founders. But within their own company, they're the lone ranger. They don't have anybody. And so I can imagine how difficult that is as well, to some extent. So I have a deep, deep respect for the CEO job. And so when, when the CEO is making, talking about things that I don't necessarily agree with or is making decisions that I perhaps not necessarily aligned with, the first thing I do is, okay, like, where is he coming from? And try to be as empathetic as possible. Like, where, where are they coming from? What information they have? Do they have that I don't have? And then be an empathetic listener because the CEO, as I said, the CEO will rely on the CFO to keep the train on the tracks and to help execute their vision. And so they rely on um, the CFO to, for resourcing to execute the vision, for funding to execute the vision, and for operational support. Because as I mentioned earlier, the CFO has a highly operational role now, um, more so now than ever before. Trust is really important, building a lot of trust with the CEO, listening to the CEO empathetically, and then redirecting them in, where, in, in places where you can redirect them, but giving them a good reason for it. And really um, articulating, and again, it's about persuasion, articulating the, articulating the pros and cons of the decision that you're steering them towards and the costs and benefits. And also reminding them that investors look at this a certain way and the market looks at this a certain way. And if this way clashes with your way, then that doesn't necessarily mean we can't do it your way, but just help me come up with a story for the investors, right? Work with me rather than, you know, me trying to dissuade you or block you and whatnot. Corporations are not democracies and the CEO cannot make decisions by asking everybody what they think, asking for a show of hands and counting the votes. At the end of the day, the CEO is the ultimate executive. It is the chief executive. And the CFO's job, once a decision is made, unless there is fraud or some kind of violation of fiduciary duty going on, the CFO's job is to help the CEO execute the vision, right? And so my approach has always been to do my job well so that they trust me, make sure I'm accurate on the numbers, that I know the numbers off, you know, like the back of my hand. So the CEO depends on me for those and then have a trusting relationship and be a sounding board. What I have found that is helpful there is the CEO and the founders and whatnot, especially the head of sales and marketing, they're allowed to be passionate. They're allowed to get passionate. They're passionate about the market. They're passionate about the product. They'll be in, you know, we'll go to a company kickoff event or a sales kickoff event and there'll be a lot of rah-rah and whatnot. But I've noticed that they, and especially the CEO, depend on me to be the opposite. 
If they are passionate, I am dispassionate. I have to be neutral. I have to be fact-based. I will let the numbers tell the story because ultimately that's what they do. And so I help by lowering the risk and by executing the vision. So I will do things like the CEO would not think of or, or you know, would prioritize. Like when I started StrongDM, for example, the first thing I did was uh, do an RFP for external auditors. And I brought in three of the big four firms, chose one. We got an audit done. The company had been around for five years and never been audited. The back office was a bit of a mess, not a bit of a mess, quite a mess. Uh, the accounting books, uh, the, the reporting, uh, tax, IT, and whatnot. And so I got the auditors and I used that as a forcing function for the CEO to allow me to fix a lot of things, right? Because it's, it's easier when you have an external audit firm saying, you guys need to fix all this. There's a material weakness here and there's an SD here and whatnot. And then I go to the CEO and say, see, I was right. And now I, I, I need you to allow me to do this. And the CEO is like, okay, I can't argue with that. Go. And then we go and do it. And that also helps minimize risk. And so it upholds the valuation of the company. So things like that is where the CEO does not have to worry about all the back office stuff. It does not have to worry about whether your financials are in conformity with GAAP. does not have to worry about your internal controls because the CFO is taking care of all of that for the CEO. So that part is like, it's what you learn when you're a lower level person, when you're, when you're an analyst or, or just a, an engineer as opposed to a manager or a director and whatnot, or, or a VP or a C-level, you're told, hey, how do you get promoted? The easiest way to get promoted is by getting your boss promoted or by helping your boss look really good. That principle still applies even when your boss is the CEO. The same principle applies, right? And so I think the combination of all those factors and those principles is really effective in helping in doing the job well and maintaining a good relationship with the CEO. That's a great explanation. Let's switch gears a little bit and take you back to the times maybe when you joined Sentinel One. It has had a really good run uh, from an IPO perspective, but I'm sure there's a lot of effort that went into it. Can you tell us a little about when to start preparing for an IPO? Yeah. And what are maybe some of the tangible steps that one should take en route to that IPO journey? Yeah, that's that's an important question. I think you know everybody who goes on the IPO journey, they have stories to share and a lot of it they have in common and then some things are unique to their experience in my case and in our case at Sentinel one it was a fast ipo and i won't share all the details but it was a fast ipo where the decision to go public was made in a certain month and then we rang the bell in the nyse five months later and i i don't recommend such a fast approach it was it was energizing it was a lot of work fast amount of time, but because the company was doing well, we were kind of motivated to do it. So it's different when when, you, when your company is doing well and you're riding that wave, it feels different. Um, the energy level is different. You feel like, oh, you don't, I'm not getting tired. No, I can, I can do, yeah, I can, I can do Sunday evening calls and I can do Saturday morning calls and no problem. Let's go, let's go. Right. Because it's, it's an event. And so it's, you know, going through a regular season, if you're playing a sport versus preparing for the Olympics. You know, it's like it's like it feels different and you just suddenly have more energy because the incentive is a little different. But to answer your question, uh, Rohit, I would say that um, you start prep a year before, ideally, which is not what we did. <laughs> right. But but you would start a year before 
And let me start from the finance perspective, since we're talking about the finance context and, and what a CFO and finance executive should do. I think the most important thing in my job there was to ensure that the financial model was robust and reliable, and we had a beat and raise model in place. Because unlike you know, when you're running a private company, you've got a plan, you've got a quarterly targets, you either hit them or you miss. If you beat them, you explain. You you have to explain why, and if you miss them, you have to explain why, and that's it, right? Either way, you explain the variances as long as you're doing it with sincerity and a certain amount of transparency, so that your investors have confidence that you're on the right track. But I think when you're a public company, you have to manage expectations every quarter. You have to give guidance to the street, ideally every quarter. You have to decide on the metrics that you want to disclose. Before you actually go public, and you have to have a beaten raise mentality, where you set an expectation that they will accept, that the that the market will accept. You then beat that expectation in the following quarter, and set a new expectation that you will then beat the following quarter, and so on and so forth.、Um, and that's the game you play. And I think different different CEOs and CFOs play can play that game with a few different permutations. Um, but generally, that is the game that is played, and you're not used to it if you've all you've done is run a private company, because the dynamics are a little bit different. The beat and raise is unique to being public, I think. And so, what I would recommend people who are considering IPO do, or in the, in the finance function, is have your beat and raise model ready a year before, ideally, at least three quarters before, and then test it for the sub- subsequent quarters before the IPO. Where you establish beat and raise model, and the and then after the following quarters close, you see if it worked. If you actually beat and you can actually raise, and you then you actually do the practical thing like a mock earnings call, where you prepare your CFO for you know the full book to prepare them for an earnings call that you would have. Do a mock earnings call, have bankers on the call or your advisors on the call give you feedback. Do that for two or three quarters before. You're going public, so you're comfortable with the with the dynamics because that's something to get used to. And so I think for core FP&A perspective, those are the really important things to to start a year before the IPO. Have a beat and raise model, do mock earnings call, and stress test your model、um, so that even when unexpected things happen, they can be within the range of your guidance when you're public. Because when you once you're public, like that's it. You know you have to be ready. And then you know, I think I mentioned it earlier, but I'll expand upon it. Is decide what metrics you're going to disclose. Make sure they don't disclose too much, and make sure that your calculation methodology for them is robust, because it is not great when your calculation is wrong because you didn't have a robust methodology that you have tested, and you have to then. Tell the street in a quarterly earnings cycle that oh my bad, like the number we disclosed last time was wrong, and here's the adjustment. You get punished in real time. There is no teacher like the market, and when you're working at a company whose security is traded publicly every day, you know from nine to four thirty or nine thirty to four, whatever it is, an NYSE or the Nasdaq or whatever. It's a different experience because the market does not have patience. It's not terribly forgiving. If it wants to punish, it'll punish in real time. If it wants to reward, it'll reward in real time, and that's how it is. That dynamic, I think, single-handedly, the difference between that versus a private company where your valuation is on every fundraise and then it stays that way, 
or in every 409A valuation, which is once a year, perhaps, at minimum, right? Or, or after every fundraise. It's not being traded every day. It's not liquid. So you don't know what's going on on a day-to-day basis. Whereas, whereas in an actual market, you know. Other than that, I think other aspects of IPO prep is making sure, having an internal audit function in place, getting ready for SOCs. You don't have to be fully ready the, the year of IPO, but I think the following year, you have to be ready for it. So internal controls matter. Of course, you worry about them as a private company, but as you're going public, they're huge. And then having your investor relations function um, staffed up, you know, and so hiring for that. And then with respect to your team, the CFO's team uh, and, and, and FP&A's team, um, making sure that all the functions are adequately covered in the forecasting and planning process. Because I think in a high growth, and this is a difficulty, a challenge that I was confronted with a set one. And I think with more prep time for an IPO, it would have been easier. But making sure that you had your FPNA leads in place for the major functions so that when you do your monthly forecasting and your monthly close and whatnot, you have adequate coverage, you're not missing anything. It lowers the probability that you'll miss your forecast. It lowers the probability that you miss your guidance. Because that's important. FPNA becomes three times more important in a public company environment. And again, and it's tied to what metrics you're guiding to. I mean, you know, Sentinel One guides to revenue and gross margin and operating margin, I, I believe. Other companies do just revenue and operating margin. Other companies do more. It depends. If, you're, if we're talking about margins, well, then you have to be good at planning all the functions. You could have a miss in everywhere. You could have a miss in the way you forecasted sales compensation, which directly impacts your sales expense. You could have a miss in the way you know you're capitalizing your R and D um, function because if you underestimated or overestimated that, that hits your R and D expense. Everybody's focused on margins, especially in this environment. So, so having that you know for a few quarters before the IPO set, and having the right people in place. So what I also found is that in the in the few quarters before the IPO. There was a lot of hiring and firing happening. More hiring than firing, of course, because you're growing the company and you're IPOing. So there's a lot of hiring, not just in finance, in IT and in um, HR and in, you know, in other functions, of course, in sales and marketing and support. But in the GNA functions, there is some firing as well because you, you have no choice. You have to have people who are competent because there's no patience when when um, there's a restatement or something like that. That's when that's when the crap hits the fan, so to speak. Um, so that was an interesting part as well. And then from again, from a finance perspective, the that beat and raise model that was talked about is super important, having it robust, because you will introduce that model at a high level to the Wall Street analysts that will then cover your company post-IPO, you know, for the buy side, especially. They will get insights into how you think about the metrics that will inform the way they forecast and they, they you know, give, they price they price you essentially establishing uh, clarity there with them during the IPO roadshow. They call it an analyst modeling session, um, and you do it a couple of times. It's very interesting, and you have you have representatives of a bunch of financial institutions who just want to see as much as possible. You know, open the kimono and just get everything. You know, what I learned was also like un- having a clear understanding of what to disclose and what not to disclose. Which, as a private company, you don't think much about because hey. You're in closed board sessions with investors who who own a significant chunk of you. You can talk about whatever you want. Like, and, and your investors are advisors. They're like, hey, tell us. The more you tell us, the more we can help you kind of thing, right? I mean, that's what growth stage investors and venture capitalists like to do, especially if you're a company that they care about. But once you're, once you're public, you know, the investors are 
more diverse and they're not going to advise you. You can't go and call them up and say, what should I do? All they want to do is know as much as possible so they can um, advise their clients, uh, these, these analysts. And so you have to be much more careful about what not to say. And that is a psychological shift as well. And that's why I think mock earnings calls are important because for a CEO and CFO who are used to talking to the board and spilling the beans on everything and saying, oh, we did this, we did that. On earnings calls, it's, it's about keeping your mouth shut as much as possible and, and not disclosing things and having the judgment to know the difference. And that requires a little bit of practice, a little bit of coaching. And uh, regardless of how successful the CEO and the CFO are, they could always do with some coaching when they're moving from private to public especially if they've never done it before. And I have not done that before. It was my first IPO, hopefully not my last. Um, but those are some of the things I learned. You mentioned about hiring and firing, not only, of course, in the finance team, but broader sort of GNA and so on. Maybe if you can talk about specifically from an IPO perspective, but also in general, any traits or any secrets you have in terms of creating a winning team, how to really pick the right kind of people for the right positions and maybe, you know, over the period of building from the very early get-go of a startup to maybe an IPO, what are the key positions to hire for as companies scale to that eventual journey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll say a couple of things. So with respect to how to hire a winning team, I think you have to look at each role uh, individually and each person individually, but then how those individuals come together as a team. And so that's important because Sometimes and oftentimes I've come across candidates for a particular role that are outstanding, but they don't necessarily, that are individually outstanding, super smart. They can, they, they know the nuts and bolts of the job, but they don't complement the rest of my existing team as well as I need them to. And so sometimes I've passed over those really good candidates for others who perhaps were not as accomplished in that role or were, were not as technically brilliant, but they complemented my existing team and complemented me much better because they had complementary skills and complementary strengths. So that's one thing that I that I noticed because different folks, even within the finance and accounting world, different professionals will have different strengths and weaknesses. And what you want is as you round out your team, as you add people to your team, and as you eject people from your team, you want the whole team to be covering as many bases as possible that you need. So somebody will be really good at revenue, you know, at revenue forecasting. They know the SaaS waterfall model backwards and forwards, and they can do all that, but they're not good at sales commissions, or they're not good at supporting R&D because they, they can't do project-based finance because they're not used to it. Okay, well then I need two different people with two different skills. And then later on, they can cross-train each other and we can move people around, right? Um, because people always, good employees always want to learn more once they're comfortable with what they're doing, right? That's one thing. And that's a generic kind of um, observation, not specific to IPO-based hiring, which I can get to in a moment. But the other thing that's also generic is I look at character and personality first. Then I look at communication and people skills second. And then third, I look for are the technical skills, generally speaking. Now, I want all three, but I'm just saying those are the order that I look at when I am talking to, to potential candidates. Because I think, you know, in, in, a corp in a corporation that's growing, that you want to help scale, the people skills in finance and accounting are super important, are more important. Uh, well, I don't know if one skill is more important than the other, but they're super important. And often they get overlooked because by, by hiring managers in finance and accounting because they're like, oh, 
I need an SEC reporting person. Like I need somebody like, let's look at the bullet points. You're reviewing resumes. You're looking, you're reviewing bullet points. You're like, oh, this person has done SEC reporting at two other SaaS companies. Okay. Okay. Let's talk to them. And, and then you're, you're looking for that and you're focused on that. And then when you're, and, and you, you gloss over the other software skills that are important. And then you end up having to fire that person like nine months later because they weren't doing what you needed them to do um, kind of thing, right? So it's easy to fall in that trap. And especially now in the context of an IPO, especially when you're going to pub- going public quickly and you don't have that much time, you start cutting corners in terms of, you know, really evaluating candidates for the positions that you have open. So I, that's why I caution against fast or shotgun IPOs, if there is such a thing. I think I think if you can argue and persuade your CEO and your board to take a little bit longer so you can bring together the right team, it pays dividends in the future. Because when you're going public, people think that going public is the goal. It's not. It's just the beginning. Like It's not about going public. It's about growing your valuation and goes back to the fundamental of a CFO. Your CFO's job, private, public, no matter who owns you, the CFO's job is to optimize the valuation of the company. That doesn't change when you're public. In fact, it becomes even more important because now your security, your your stock is traded every day. So it's like, all right, well, now how do you handle this on a daily basis? And so because you could have market changing and company changing events that happen in the middle of a quarter and you're not ready for it and whatnot. So so it's about it's about the time after the IPO and it's about showing because because you're doing it, you're because you'll have a lot of new investors in the IPO who will then expect to generate a return on what they're investing three or four or five years out. So the IPO is just the beginning for most of your well, for a lot of your investors, right? And then it's it's even for your earlier investors, it's not the end for them. It's actually a middle middle point because they will want to wait longer to sell their holdings for higher capital gains. And so so the post-IPO world is more important than the, the event of the IPO. And so when you're hiring a team, you got to hire a team that will be good in that post-IPO world. And that's difficult because the, and this is difficult, especially for companies that are growing at 100%, 150%. I can only imagine what companies like Snowflake experience and, and how they do. You have to be somewhat ruthless in the way you hire and fire because ultimately, the reality is most people are good at companies for certain limited parts of the company's life cycle. There is certain DNA that is good at early stage companies, private companies. Then there's a different DNA for mid to late stage private companies. And then there's a different DNA for post IPO publicly traded companies. It's hard to find people who are good at all those stages of a company's life cycle. It is much easier and much more practical to have the spine to hire and fire at different stages. And fire may not be what you have to do all the time. It could also be rearrange or rejigger, move somebody into a different job that can still be in the post-IPO world, but that they're more suited for because they can't handle whatever it is that they were doing in a public company context, right? So being creative as a leader and a manager so that, hey, everybody hates firing people. Most people hate the idea of firing somebody. But, but you still need to, to be effective in your functions. So be creative in how you can replace people, place people in new roles where they can be effective, 
but the company can also be effective and then use firing as a last resort. I mean, you have to do it uh, inevitably in some contexts, but use it as a last resort. But that's important. And I think good leaders and good CEOs, effective CEOs and C-level executives, including CFOs that I have seen, do this very well. Um, they, they realize that most people, you want everybody to be good all the, t- all the time. It's not going to happen. So you have to have that understanding as part of your approach to running a company. We have seen a lot of technology advancements in the field of finance as well. How does that interplay with creating a winning team? And over your career, have you kind of came to a conclusion now that, hey, this is kind of my ideal CFO technology stack that I can then pair with a winning team and really make it a powerhouse of uh, of a finance function? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm still trying to come up with the right answer to this question um, because you know, there are new tools that are coming out, and but new needs as well. Um, I think in finance and accounting, you're dealing with a lot of, especially in the modern tech company, you're dealing with a lot of disparate sources of information and different sources of data. And I think one common challenge for finance executives and CFOs is how do I get a single pane of glass, or at least what looks like a single pane of glass into all the inner workings of the enterprise? And it's not just financial metrics, it's operational metrics, it's functional metrics. And, and the thirst for insights is almost limitless. Like there's always insights that people want. You always want to know more about what's going on, um, but you, you're limited by time and space. So there seem to be a lot of tools. I mean, obviously, you know, in terms of a tool stack, you want a good accounting system that allows you to close the books on time, that produces a balance sheet and other income statements that has good reporting, that has all the necessarily internal controls, uh, that has a lot of automation around the controls, so that it's very easy to pass an audit. You just show the audit logs, you show the you show the workflows from the system, print them out, send them to your auditor, you're done. Those things are pretty um, bread and butter by now. But you know, then there are, there are more peripheral tools. So there are a lot of accounting tools out there. There are a lot of spend management tools now that I'm noticing that CFOs are looking at. I won't name specific vendors, but you know there are tools that help you govern your SaaS sprawl, so to speak. Companies that are grow, they they use a lot of tools and they're spending a lot of money. And then when they try to get efficient, they need sometimes they need software that helps. Ironically, software to ma- manage all the other software, right? So spend management tools are starting to become popular among financial managers, among among CFOs. Um, I think. As I said earlier, a lot of CFOs are becoming more operational, and so they're doing a lot more into traditionally non-finance tools like um, CRM tools and forecasting tools that are not specifically financial forecasting tools, but pipeline and sales um, related tools. So I spend a lot of time in the sales forecasting tools that we use at our company, even though I don't manage the sales team because I'm not the head of sales. And, and then, the, then there are connectors across these tools, like how do you get your data from your sales CRM into your accounting system in a you know bi-directional way so that your PO invoice re- receipt like three-way match happens or your um, you know billings revenue and collection matches and all that stuff so that's also kind of bread and butter but it's interesting to see the need for connecting across all these tools that's one common theme in the finance um, tool stack is I've got a bunch of tools I need something to kind of connect all of them um, and then I think in the future what will be I mean, it's very hard to get away from Excel. Like everybody uses it, Excel or Google Sheets. But regardless of what, you know, fancy planning tools there are, and again, I won't name vendors, but there are all kinds of 
you know, there are there are several tools because the barriers to entry to make a planning tool are relatively low. So there are, you know, people, who, especially people who have a finance and accounting background and think they have they have an idea for a great financial planning tool that nobody else has built. They'll, you know, bring a bunch of engineers together, lay out a vision and say, make this tool. And then they try to sell it and they're competing with 15 others because they're all roughly similar or different. There's a lot of feature parity because the barriers to entry are low. You know, I took Sentinel one IPO on Excel. We didn't have a planning tool. We didn't need one. And it was fine. And I would be surprised if they're still on Excel. I mean, I've been out of there for more than a year and a half. But why? Because we were good at Excel and because the business model was not so complicated as to need something different. And we did a beat and raise model in Excel. We managed it and it was it was great. And we had several interlocking models um, that brought the brought the forecast and everything together, but it was all in spreadsheets. But having said that, is that optimal? Oh, it depends on the context. So th- those are the, you know, kind of three or four different areas. I think accounting and accounting tools, absolutely spend management is becoming more popular. Getting into CRM and pipeline tools, the CFO is starting to do more of, and then spreadsheet tools. And there are even different spreadsheet tools like Smartsheets and some others that I'm starting to see now, which is interesting. I think for the future, if you were to look to the future, what I can't tell, because I still have to get my hands dirty with it, is what AI tools will do with a, to a lot of this, especially around forecasting and planning, because I can envision AI tools taking disparate data sources, putting them together, you give it certain instructions and certain inputs, and it pops out forecasted scenarios for you uh, in a way that you couldn't do before. Even with the tools that existed before, you would still have to do a lot of the work. But I can imagine AI doing a lot of forecasting, which makes the future of FP&A and strategic finance interesting. But I'll leave it there because I have no prediction to make because I'm not smart enough to know where it'll go. All right. Very cool. What does a successful career look like to you? I think in the, in the context of the CFO job and the finance executive's job, I think a successful career is, if you look back on it, you can say that you grew value of companies that you worked for. Um, and it just goes back to the fundamental of a financial manager's job, whether it's a CFO or VP of finance or whatever, but, but the profession's job is to optimize the valuation of the company you work for. And so if you could go back in time, you know, uh, in your career and your track record and, and say, hey, yeah, when I joined the company, the value was X, and then I grew it to Y, and now it's at Z, and I left it, you know, and then I went to the next company, and I it was A, and I grew it to B, and whatnot. If you can show that that's what happened with those companies, and that you played a role there, I think that's a successful career in this profession. And then I think when, when we talk about exits or, or transactions, whether they're sales or IPOs or similar things, that is nice to talk about, like, oh, yeah, I did an IPO. Yeah, I sold this company to company Y, and you know that was a good transaction. Those are good to talk about, but I think they are just correlated with the first thing, which is, did we create value? Was value created? And was, was wealth created as well? And by wealth, I mean not just for yourself, but for your fellow employees, um, which is another measuring stick, I think. Because if you grow enterprise value and you have... It naturally follows that if you have employees who own part of that value in the form of stock and the form of shares, and you grow that enterprise value, you've done a good thing for your employees as well. 
and for your peers and colleagues as well. And that's great. And that's the beauty of the corporation and of free markets and capital markets and labor markets and product markets is they're connected in that way. And um, the, the central theme is growing value. And, and if you take the next step, not logical step of how is that value grown? It's really supporting the vision of the CEO uh, and of, of the executive team, supporting the company's vision in either making an existing market more efficient or creating a new market. Because ultimately, that's how companies survive and thrive. Because in a perfectly competitive market, nobody makes a profit. The way a profit is made is by differentiation and with some amount of monopoly power. And the way you do that is by making an existing market more efficient, which is what companies like Sentinel One and CrowdStrike did, in that there was already a next-gen antivirus market. I mean, Symantec, McAfee, and others were doing that. But it was inefficient because the products weren't as good as they could be. And then other companies came in, created a better product, met the demand that existed, and made that market more efficient. And every time you make a market more efficient, you create wealth. And then the other way to create wealth, which is harder, but companies do that, is create new markets. It's a much harder and more rare thing to do, but creating a new market also generates wealth. And again, if you're employ you allow your employees, which most companies do, to be part owners, regardless of how small, part owners of the company, then you're creating wealth for them. So I think those are signs of a, of a successful career. If you can look back, and in the context of a finance executive, if you look back and say, I grew enterprise value for these companies that I worked for, and I generated wealth for my colleagues and peers across these companies that I worked for, you've had a great career. If you could change one thing about your career, what would that be? Oh, gosh. Yeah, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? But I think um, I'm not sure I would change much about my career, but I, I would have changed something that I did perhaps even earlier on, which is with respect to my approach to school and education, is um, I would have actually delayed um, starting college. I would have delayed it by a year. And I would have used that year to do a lot of different things and to really sample different jobs. Because if you, if you can take a year or so in between high school and your undergraduate experience, then you know that you're going to end up in school in a year. And you've got this year in between. And you have a lot of freedom to experience different kinds of jobs in short bursts. You can go and do two months of an unpaid or a low, low pay internship at a at a startup or at a large company doing something very basic, but you get exposure, talk to people at lunchtime and whatnot, see what they do, see what their life is like. Then you can do something else like be, you know, a ball boy for, at a tennis stadium, you know, for like a tournament and like see what that's like. And it's a totally different job. You can be a waiter or, or something else at, at, you know, if that's not what you end up, you know, choosing to do for your profession, and you didn't even think of it, but you know, go and do it. Experience different kinds of jobs, experience different kinds of activities to get to really sample what the post-school real world world kind of looks like before you're in the situation of being post-school and being in the real world, because then you can then go into college and have a much better idea of what's what and what, what the world kind of looks like. And that allows you to focus and prioritize what you want because College today, and I'm an American, so I'll talk about the American context, but college today is a bit of a, um, bit too much of a buffet. It's like a smorgasbord. You go in and there are all these different things. There are a hundred different things you could do. 
And most of the times you don't get clear direction on what's good for you and what's not, which means that you need to know yourself really well and have a much clearer kind of picture of what your end goal is to be is and what you what is good for you and what's not good for you. You know, because it's not just about what you do, but also about what you choose not to do that defines your life experience. And so I think that kind of experience before college where, you know, you have the opportunity to do a wide variety of things because it's low risk because you're going to school anyway. So try out a bunch of different things. You don't need to make money um, at that at that time. And then go to college with that experience under you and with focused perspective. So if I had done that, Lord knows where I'd be today. Maybe not in, in my current profession. Who knows? But Everything happens for a reason. But as far as my as my career is concerned, you know, I'm not sure what I would change. I think the, the switches that I made and the changes that I made, they were logical, and at least they seemed and they seemed well thought out at the time. And obviously companies are different. Some companies do really well, some companies don't. In the corporate if you have a corporate career, I mean that's the nature of working for companies. And as long as you're comfortable with that, then you, you can have a fulfilling career. You come across as a very calm person what's the secret behind that calmness i let out all my frustration at the gym i i sweat it out and i'm done which is also why i go in the mornings so i go to the gym at, at 7 a.m and i lift heavy objects for 45 minutes and uh personal training helps i mean somebody's there to check your form and all that which is great but really exercise is medicine it truly is so that combined with eating healthy or trying to eat healthy is, 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 I guess, my secret if I have one. Every morning, I'm either at the gym or playing tennis, and that helps a lot because it's a break from the back-to-back, you know, corporate kind of day-to-day things that I have and the, and the frustrations around that. It's like a reset every day. So that's my secret. Different people do different things, but I think exercise is a wonderful way to reset. Very cool. Karan, this has been an intriguing uh, conversation. I think I would now like to move to a quick lightning round to make it a little fun to end with. So I'll ask some quick questions and all I need uh, is kind of immediate responses. Okay. So uh, let's start. Uh, Sweet or savory? Savory. Books or podcasts? Books. Thinker or doer? Doer. LinkedIn or Twitter? Oh, that's a tough one. LinkedIn. Scotch or whiskey? Whiskey. You an introvert or an extrovert? Introvert. Mountains or beaches? Beaches. Growth or profitability? Growth. What is your one hidden talent? Fast walking. <laughs> Ideal place to retire? Ooh. I think North Carolina. Good weather, good people, four seasons, and a change from where I am, which is Florida, where it's hot all the time. All right. Uh, Number one thing on your bucket list right now? Ah, Italy. I have never been. Who is your role model? Maybe on the personal side or the professional side, either one. I think, so Frank Slootman. Uh, who was the CEO of um, Snowflake? He wrote a book, Amp It Up, which I really enjoyed. And he's he's somebody I follow. I think he's great. All right. One thing that can make you 10x more productive? 
probably chat GPT since I haven't used it yet and I have no idea how to. So I got to learn. All right. Uh, the last one, describe yourself in three words. I am Karan. <laughs> That's three words. <laughs> and it's true. That's probably not the answer you're looking for. I'll, I'll give you an answer you're yeah. looking for. Extroverted introvert, because that's what I am. I'm an introvert, but who likes people? Straightforward. Straightforward. All right, very cool. Karan, this has been an amazing, amazing show. Thanks for all the time and uh, taking us through that kind of whirlwind of uh, your, your mindset. Thanks a lot. Uh, you bet. It was a great pleasure and hope to see you soon. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you'll find at least one nugget that is beneficial to you. As always, thanks for listening to Strategy of Finance. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us on Apple or Google Podcasts. Your comments will make us better. And be sure to tune in next week for another engaging conversation. Until then, this is Rohit Agarwal, and remember to learn, grow, and inspire.